Welcome to the Total Financial Podcast channel. My name is Scott Whitehead and I'll be your host today. Our podcast today is going to focus on some of the proposed tax law changes that are being discussed in Washington and some strategies that you can use today. Really at the end of the day, our goal is to highlight those changes and really give you some talking points and some case studies and scenarios that you can start planning today. We feel it's an incredible opportunity for you to start to plan today and have those conversations with some of these higher net worth clients. With me today, I've had Bob Finnegan. He's an advanced planning attorney from our strategic partner at Highland Capital. I've had the pleasure of working with Bob over the past couple of years on a number of cases, and I really like his style. It's really thoughtful. He really puts the consumer in the front of the, the picture. It's, it's a really no-nonsense style, too. So with that, welcome, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Glad, happy to be here. I'm really excited to have you here because I think this is really relevant content for our agents today. So one thing we wanted you to know is we go through this content because we feel it's so relevant. We really want you to start to think about some names and some of your clients that could be affected by these changes. So take a second as you're listening to us and we're going through the content, just write a few names down because I think it's really important that you have those in front of us and you'll find that this content will be really important to those clients. Yeah, and, and I might add that uh, don't think of just clients, also think of advisors and centers of influence that it'd be worth your speaking with. They're going to be pretty flat out and it's good to get, get in their ear now. Yeah, it's a great idea. You definitely want to uh, get in front of those centers and influences. And I'm pretty sure that estate planning attorneys are going to be pretty busy at the end of the year, aren't they? Yeah, just like last year. So let's start with what's happening with our friends in Washington. I know there's a ton of changes being proposed and, and talked about on both the estate and income tax side. Can you kind of just walk through and give us some highlights of those? Yeah, yeah. And just before, I want to give it a little more context too. As you've emphasized throughout your introduction is these are proposed changes. And, and there's a good chance that they won't be able to get anything done. Um, you know, everything's being voted along party lines. Democrats have a razor thin margin in the Senate. It's 50-50 with Vice President Harris as a tiebreaker. And there's only a five seat margin in the House and midterm elections are coming in conservative uh, seats, Democratic seats that are at risk are going to be more conservative about what they're going to pass. So um, the other thing is that I want to really emphasize is everything about the tax law changes presents opportunities. So I, I know my first reaction is to resist change and they say, oh my God, what are they doing? They're killing the estate planning world, but we'll find opportunities. And, and if we have a few minutes at the end, we can just touch very briefly on, on those. And finally, um, these proposed changes really present some real opportunities today, and we're going to focus in the wealth transfer area. Uh, so, so with that, Scott, I think I'll just do a real high-level overview of, of the changes in the income, corporate income, and uh, transfer tax arenas. So individual income taxes, there's a threat that they'll go up to 39.6 from a top marginal rate of 37%. That's not a huge change. The really big change is the threat to the tax on capital gains. If you have an earner who's earning greater than a million dollars of income, uh, their capital gains would be taxed at 39.6%. So it's almost a double from the 20% federal rate today. I think realistically, they're not gonna be able to double it. I think more realistically, we might see a 30% uh, tax on incomes above a million. Also, itemized deductions, they're talking about limiting those to 28%. So that would affect charitable as well as other tax deductions. 
And at set at 28%, that means that they'd be about 70 to 75% of worth what they're worth today. So it would be a reduction. Uh, Social security tax they're talking about raising for wages over 400,000. So it'd still be up to $142,800. Then there'd be a gap. And then for wages above 400, it would pick up again. And that would ensure that people who are making less than 400,000 don't have higher taxes, uh, one of President Biden's key promises. So on the corporate side, just a couple of changes that are very likely. Top corporate rate could go from 21 to 28%. I think realistically, it's going to end up at 25%. That's what uh, Joe Munchen from West Virginia supports. And uh, he's kind of been uh, a holdup on the Democratic Party, so it has an usual amount of power. Um, there's also minimum tax on book income. I think this is actually a good thing, raising that rate to 15%. Because right now, uh, large corporations are moving income offshore and not paying any taxes or very low taxes. Social Security changes that donut we just talked about would affect corporations as well. And finally, the last one that you don't hear a lot about, but uh, right now, um, a lot of flow through entities. So that would be S corporations, partnerships, limited liability companies get a reduced 20% deduction on their qualified business income. And that could get phased out for incomes over 400,000. So that would kind of levelize the field between flow through entities and C corporations that are gonna potentially have those higher taxes. Now where for us, it really gets most interesting is the gift and estate planning factors. And uh, right now our current exemption is $11.7 million per person. That's indexed for inflation. And for a married couple, that means they have 23.4 million of exemptions. And there's threats to bring the estate ex exemption down to three and a half or five million. Talk, there's been some talk, although I don't think it has any energy behind it, of dropping the gift tax exemption to a million. Right now, the current law, as it stands today, as we all know, that exemption gets cut in half or sunsets on January 1st, 2026. And I think the most politically expedient path is for the Democrats to merely accelerate the sunset of that exemption. So instead of waiting to January 1st, 2026, it would be accelerated to January 1st, 2022. Although there is a slight chance that could be made retroactive to January 1st of this year, I think it's really unlikely. And we do have strategies for gifting so clients that don't get caught making a large gift today and then have the gift exemption reduce uh, for the beginning of the year. So uh, that can all be addressed. The top marginal federal estate tax rate has been talked about raising that to 45%. And for estates in excess of a billion dollars, that excess above a billion dollars could be taxed as high as 70%. I think there's some, some energy behind that, but I, I th don't think it'll go, the rates would go quite that high, maybe, maybe a 50 or 60% rate. Um, one of the biggies is defective, defective grantor trusts are one of the mainstays of today's wealth transfer planning because the grantor pays taxes on trust income, which in effect is a free gift and a free dynasty trust or GST tax transfer. Uh, so they're talking about reducing, eliminating that for estate planning purposes. Um, one of the really big ones is stepped up cost basis. And right now on date of death, even if an estate is not taxed, assets get a stepped up cost basis uh, to fair market value. And they're threatening to not just eliminate that, because if they just eliminated the stepped up basis, that means that heirs would have a carryover basis. 
but they're also talking about that being a triggering event so that any built-in gain, the difference between the fair market value and the decedent's cost basis would be currently taxed. That's huge. And I also think that they've, well, I don't think, I know they're talking about uh, gifts triggering taxation as recognition events. So if you tried to gift an appreciated asset to an irrevocable trust, the taxation would be triggered at the time of gift. And there are some other things rolling around in there too. I think the stepped up cost basis is not going to happen or not going to be eliminated. And one of the reasons is it's just such an administrative nightmare to, to try and track basis. Even if a client has all marketable securities where you think they'd be able to figure out the basis easily, well, they bought those at different times over long periods of time and tracking out all the different pieces of a client's portfolio could be extraordinarily complex. And that's the easy asset potentially. Um, and there's some other things, grat, grat durations, dynasty trusts might be shortened to 90 years, um, limits on the annual gift tax ex exclusion and the elimination on discounts for planning entities such as LLCs and FLPs family limited partnerships that are created to obtain discounts. So that's that's kind of what I see. And the last, the last point I'll mention, Scott, is we've been focusing on the federal and the state, what the states are going to do is the real wild card. You know, that's a that's a handful of things that you just gave us. I'll be curious to see what the states choose to do. And obviously we don't have we don't have that in front of us. But as I as I listen to you on here, there's opportunities here, isn't there? I mean, really, there is to start that planning now, because even if they don't make changes, having that conversation with the, your higher net worth client is super important about starting some kind of planning, isn't it? it exactly. And, and that raises a really good point because, because everything's so uncertain. Let's, let's say you've talked to a client, had a couple conversations about them making some substantial gifts today. I think a really good question to ask them when you're at that point, you don't ask this too early, but ask them. Whether or not they pass a new tax law, are you comfortable with these gifts? Because you don't want to get caught in a situation where your clients have made some large gifts, the Democrats can't get out of their own way and nothing happens. And now the clients are coming back to you and said, why do you have me do these gifts? You don't want to get caught in that. One of, one of my basic pre premises is don't back yourself into a corner. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's funny how you, you say that because I think you have seven principles that you like to call them. And I think before we get into our case studies and any of the scenarios that we're going to talk about. Well, well, the interesting thing, Scott, is people don't stop and look at these kinds of principles. So yeah, what's really interesting about um, these seven estate planning principles, and, I, and I'm sure I've actually got more because I just gave you one, don't back yourself into a quarter. Planners and really experienced planners don't take these into account and they don't present their planning in this context. And I think if you adopt these principles, you're going to find that you're far more successful and it will help you develop stronger relationships with the clients. So here we go. Uh, so the first one is, and this is really important, your client's financial security and comfort comes first. I've seen so many times where advisors are trying to tell the client what they should do and as if the client has the as if the advisor is the one making the decision. So again, financial security first and foremost, wealth and transfer comes second, transferring it to children and future generations. Number two, 
When possible, the planning should be client-centric versus beneficiary-centric. And with married couples, as we're gonna talk a little bit about, we have the really powerful tools of SLATs where the clients can gift the assets, remove them from the taxable estate, and yet still have access to income and principal and control of those assets. So it's really important um, to optimize clients' control and their access and security. The clients, I mentioned this already, your clients should be comfortable with the planning regardless of whether or not the tax law is actually passed, um, as, as we mentioned earlier. Number four, it's essential to put together a team of independent advisors that the client trusts who are committed to their best interests. If everybody's pulling in the same direction, you can really develop a much better process and result for the client. Number five, I mentioned earlier, and again, this is one of my favorites, it's the client's estate plan. It's not my estate plan. It's not Scott's estate plan. It's not the attorney's. It's not the CPA's. It's the client's plan and it's their decision. Now, that being said, it doesn't mean if I think the clients are doing something really stupid, that I'm not going to push them on something, but it is ultimately their decision. And one of the corollaries to this is we really want to help them make informed decisions. Uh, six, although addressing taxes is central, a solid estate plan addresses all the threats to wealth. So it's things like divorce, creditors, predators, destructive family dynamics, spoiling children with too much too soon, antisocial behavior, drug use, involved in a cult, and so on. And, and so taxes are still extraordinarily important, but it's not the only thing you're planning for. Uh, finally, Another one of my favorites, prescription without diagnosis is malpractice. My simplest definition of estate planning is who gets what and when do they get it. And it's important that the client provide full information so that you know about the family dynamics, you know what their property is and where it's owned and how it's owned and have a really reasonable idea of what it's worth um, because full disclosure is really important to help the clients put together a really good plan. You know, I really like these seven principles, you know, as advisors and brokers think about their planning in general, whether it's estate planning or not. I love this because it puts the client in the front seat. And in control. Yes. Yeah. And that's, and that's what we're trying to do. One of the things I'm going to emphasize too, Scott, because I see so much of it, we, we work so hard and focus so much on transferring wealth to the children. And what I love about SLATs is when you change that focus to, well, here's planning that does something for the clients themselves, creditor protection, moves it out of the family, but they still have access to control. It's really powerful. And there's ways we can use single life insurance to enhance that. So we have four scenarios that we want to talk about. And we've got a couple of case studies in those. And so what we've done is kind of broken down the kind of the, the wealth spectrum into four different areas. So the affluent, the merely wealthy, the high net worth, and the ultra net worth. So those are kind of the four categories that we've broken down. And we're going to give you scenarios on each of these different categories that we think kind of fit. So why don't we start, Bob, with what that affluent group looks like and some of the planning things that we can do there. Yeah, and, and I'll really emphasize, you know, as, as we were working on this and putting together, it, it's really hard to create these cubby holes that everybody fits into nice and neatly. And, and we really want to emphasize that every case is unique. And someone with a $10 million estate, we don't recommend they do heavy gifting and you can simply use, you know, a survivorship policy owned by the children or 
preferably by an irrevocable trust, and it frees up their assets for other planning. But there may be clients in their 70s, they're expecting an inheritance or whatever it is, they've got a really strong pension, and they maybe they'll want to do some more serious gifting than we tend to recommend. But generally for clients in that range, because I want to look at uh, their financial security first and foremost in that zero to $10 million range, you know, they're not going to do a lot of heavy gifting and insurance can be really powerful, both as an estate planning vehicle and as a personal planning vehicle. So again, by purchasing survivorship in a trust outside the estate, it frees them up to be more liberal with their own spending and, and feeling uh, addressing their own comfort level. Uh, and Scott, I know you've got a very specific case you've worked on lately in this in this very range. Yeah, you know what? This was a nice case. It was, you know, a couple mid-60s. Uh, worth around that $10 million mark, which is kind of falls in where we think this uh, affluent range fits. Three children, you know, they didn't really have any insurance. They had done some gifting. So they actually had done a little bit of planning. And this is a case that you and I discussed that the end of the day, changes or no changes, this would be a really nice opportunity for a, a survivor. And kind of how I did the math, and this is thumb in the air math, was, okay, so if we drop this all the way down to, let's say the exemption goes to three and a half million, all of a sudden we have three and a half on him, we have three and a half on her, that brings me up to seven. That gives me about a $3 million estate that I may have some issues with. And at 40%, that puts me at 1.2 million. We looked at for this client, either between 1.5 and $3 million of survivor insurance, which they could easily afford, put it in an islet. And it did a couple of things, right? It caused, uh, it could cause a liquidity event, which could pay for the taxes or the liquidity event could free up assets to do something else within their estate should something happen. I mean, that was a case that you and I worked on. I thought that one was, was a really good solution for that client. And I think, Scott, there's a, there's a ton of clients who are, are, you know, say in the $5 million range. And personally owned insurance is a great play with uh, what we call LERP or life insurance retirement planning. And, you know, um, we're seeing a lot of success with that strategy and you adding on long-term care riders and so forth. I'm sure you see a fair amount of that as well. We do. It's one of the nicest ways to cover. Some, sometimes you have a client that goes, hey, Scott, I can't afford just to do long-term care insurance and insurance. Can I combine them together? I think it's a really good tool for our agents to be using with our clients. I, I love using those LTC riders. Yeah, I, I agree. Totally. All right. So I love the name of this next group. These are the quote unquote, the merely wealth group. Yeah. Again, <laughs> a very a loose category. But, but yeah. here again, survivorship's a, a really powerful tool for these clients, you know, because again, it takes care of the estate tax problem without them having to do a lot of gifting. And, and in addition, this is where dual spousal lifetime access trusts can start to raise their head because you could, instead of buying survivorship, why don't you consider funding a couple of slats with single life insurance only? So husband creates a, a slat that's for the benefit of his wife and children and future generations, optionally dynasty trust, and buys life insurance on the husband. And that's, that's the only asset it's going to be, and husband's going to make gifts to fund that insurance. Likewise, wife creates a, a slat, and she buys life insurance on her own life and makes gifts to fund that. And that slat's for the benefit of husband children and future generations. So they've created the life insurance outside the taxable estate to pay their estate taxes, but yet they, it's still going to benefit them if they need it. So if husband dies, 
then let's say there's $5 million of life insurance in that trust. It's going to pay into the husband's trust and wife is a beneficiary and she can be a co-trustee. Likewise, if wife died first, the $5 million gets paid into her trust and that's going to be for the benefit of husband and he can be a co-trustee. Of course, with SLATs, we've always got to be careful that the trusts aren't too similar, that they're not reciprocal, but that's trust 101 for a good t and &E attorney. So here you've You've instead of using the traditional approach, you've showed this alternative. And yes, it's 40 to 50% more expensive if you bought five and five on each than if you bought 10 million of survivorship. But you know what? You've showed the clients a unique idea. Even if they decide to move forward with the survivorship, they're going to look at you in a different light and it distinguishes you from other advisors. So I really like that in this bracket. Now, also in that 10 to $25 million gift range. As you start to move up that bracket, there may be more and more gifting. And we'll talk about that a little more in the next example. So the merely wealthy is our kind of quote unquote 10 to 25 million, right? Kind of that. Exactly. Yeah. All right. So the next bucket is we'll call them the high net worth bucket. And we're kind of, you know, that 25-ish to $60 million range. What, uh, what do you see happening there? Yeah, and the reason we call this high net worth, it's, it's actually starting to bump into what I would call ultra high net worth. But here's why we drew the line where we did. If you have a client that's worth 50 or $60 million, are they going to use both spouses exemption or $23.4 million and, and use up to a half or a third of their estate and gift it out of their estate, even though they still have access in the slats, it's not the same thing as having it in your hot little hands. So uh, we draw the line there. And if you consider gifting uh, discounting that's still available, you know, they could convert 23.7 very easily into, in, or 23.4 very easily into $30 million. So that would be half of a $60 million estate. Again, it's not my decision, but as a general rule, I kind of try to try to shy away from doing that heavy gifting. So what do we do? And, and, and Scott and I, we worked on it about three weeks ago, worked on a case this way. And I told Scott, I've come across about seven or eight of these situations in the, in the last three weeks where clients are right. Most of them are right in that 30 to $35 million range. They're now with a $30 million client with discounting, you could gift their whole estate into slats. And some clients do that, but I get really uneasy when they do it. So what do we do? So let's say clients are $30 million and they're willing to give $5 million each or a total of 10 million. And so if they each created a slat and gifted 5 million into that slat, all's good. Money's 5 million outside the estate. They're each going to have income while both are alive. They have 100% access to income and principal as a marital unit. And after the first death, they lose access to half those assets. But here's, here's the issue. If they reduce the exemption from $11.7 million per person to $5 million per person, then because each spouse made a gift of $5 million, they haven't used any of what I call bonus exemption. The bonus exemption is different between the 11.7 that they have available today and the 5 million or whatever it gets reduced to. But for example, we use 5 million. So they have a $6.7 million bonus exemption. But because each spouse gifted 5 million, and that's what the exemption gets dropped to looking at my crystal ball, they didn't use any of that $6.7 million bonus exemption. So what do we do? We, I call this stacking gifts. 
So let's take the $10 million they're willing to gift and have one spouse make that big gift into, and usually it's the husband. So husband creates his slat, gives 10 million of assets. Let's say it's securities, business interest, real estate, whatever. And now, so he's using some of his bonus exemption to whatever that $10 million gift exceeds what it's ultimately reduced to. So everything's well and good. If husband dies first, wife has access to the income and principle of the $10 million that was gifted, right? But what if the wife dies first and husband no longer has direct access to that $10 million? Now, husband could always go borrow against it, and but it would have to be an arm's length loan similar to what you'd get from a bank. And we know how unfavorable those terms can be. So it's not efficient. And clients really like having that direct access much better. So what do we do then for wife? We have her creator slat and her slat buys life insurance on her life. So let's say it bought $10 million of single life coverage on the wife. So that if she dies first, when husband loses access to the 10 million that he gifted, there's $10 million of income tax-free proceeds outside the estate that theirs is there to support husband. This is really powerful. Clients really like this planning. So um, we're having a lot of success with it. And one thing I'll mention too, Scott, just about slats, besides the reciprocal trust issue, you really with clients with slats, you want that to be the backstop. In other words, you don't want them, and this is looking from the wealth, most efficient wealth transfer. If the extent they can leave those assets alone in the slats and not use the income or principal, it's growing outside their taxable estate, ideally in a dynasty trust avoiding repeat estate taxation. We work hard to move the assets out of the estate. Let's not bring them back in unnecessarily. If the clients can consume from their assets that they own personally first, and then use the slats for emergency and as backup, that's the most efficient. I don't want the tax tail wagging the dog. So I always say, you know, even if the clients they just would rather take the money out of the slat. They'd rather get the income out of there, let them do it. But, you know, again, we don't need to have the tax tail wagging the dog all the time. Yeah, that's true. But it gives them some creativity in their plan. It also gives them some optionality. And I think optionality yeah. is really important when you look at these plans, right? Yeah, it's really the way I like to put it, Scott, it's really important to give clients choice right? But not too much. There's a number of other strategies I, I like to look at as well. But if, you know, if you're showing them and everybody else is talking about survivorship and you come on with this different idea, I, I think it really puts you in good stead. Uh, I, I really like the slat planning. I think it's, I think it's really a powerful tool for this high net worth for that merely wealthy. I, I don't think advisors talk about them enough and I think we should be using them more. This final category is the big boys, right? The ultra yeah, the high net boys. worth. Yeah, they're the easy ones, you know, yeah. because because they can clearly afford, you know, to make the full $23.4 million gift. You know, they may want to use slats. I always talk, even if I have a client worth $200 million, I still want to talk about slats because even clients with 200 million can feel very insecure. For example, especially if it's a family business or something. Um, I don't I don't want to presume anything. And again, I don't want to back to myself into a corner by saying you don't need slats. And then they find out the clients really want the idea and somebody else suggested it. So, um, but this group is much easier. And you're going to run across clients who have already gifted their full $23.4 million. And they may want to do additional planning. The easiest sale in a very, in the ultra high net worth space is when you can find an already funded irrevocable trust that has excess cash flow to pay premiums. That's where you look first, but it's rarely that easy. 
They've got the money committed for something else. It's supporting 10 children and grandchildren. Who knows what the story is? But, you know, and we have really good strategies with something called private financing where the, the clients can lend money to that trust. It's not a gift. And, and the lend loaned funds can be used to pay the life insurance premiums. You know, I really enjoy the more complicated the case is, the more fun it is from my point of view. So I really enjoy digging in and and creating something that clients can understand and, and make a decision on. That's the nice thing about it. I mean, you know, that ultra high net worth group, they are going to be affected if there's changes. They're probably going to be really affected. Yes. Yes. Especially with that income taxation of trust earnings where it's not being picked up by the grantor anymore and things like that. And, and the other thing too is, is, you know, Scott's brought me in on a number of larger cases and I've had client conversations and, you know, the, the, the clients, I'm talking the attorney's language. You know, I usually develop a very good rapport with the attorneys, you know, to work as, as part of the team and help you guys be successful, more successful with this. And, and I've worked with these different strategies so much and, and the attorneys and accounts, most of them don't really see how the insurance fits in. And it's really powerful when you bring it in and have these non-insurance strategies work together, like the private financing, the loan to the trust with the insurance and how they work together. It's really powerful. Yeah, that I love. I'm a huge private financing fan. I, I, I think for these ultra high net worth and even that, that high net worth group, it's a, it's a great strategy for somebody to use their own assets and quote unquote, keep their own assets. You know, one of the things I love about it, Scott, is you've always got three, the client always has three options. One, leave it in place, leave the loan in place. Two, convert it into a gift very easily. So we're, let's say nothing gets done and the 11.7 million exemption is going to sunset on January 1st, 2026. And it's mid and it's the day before clients can sign a thing saying, I forgive this loan and turn it into a gift, get it notarized and signed. And, and they made a gift very easily on short notice. And finally, we like to do this with enough assets to both pay the premiums and repay the loan. And so the client always has the option of getting repaid. And especially if there's a cash value contract that they're buying, we have between the investment assets and the cash value, we typically have enough to repay the client. Now they would need a friendly trustee, you know, because the client can't make a unilateral decision to be repaid, but it just gives clients that comfort level, making it client centric and making them comfortable with moving forward with the plan. Yeah. Back to that word client centric, which, yeah. which I really appreciate. I mean, so if we look at these kind of four scenarios that we talked about, the door is really opened, isn't it, Bob? I mean, it is, yeah. Especially on that, that those first two, that affluent and that merely wealthy. I think that door is wide open right now. It, it is. And if the proposed changes come, that's going to open up. A, let's say they drop, let's say they just cut the exemption in half. That's going to open up a huge range of clients who need the estate planning now, and they still have gift exemption to fund it and do some real planning. So I, I think, you know, and then with the income tax changes, that could affect personally owned insurance, corporate owned insurance, trust owned. If trusts are now taxed at, at 40% federal rate or even a 30% federal rate, and they take away defective grant or trust, a lot of trust investments are going to shift to life insurance. So looking at if, if those legislative changes take place, everything's an opportunity. Well, I mean, we did ask everyone to think about the scenarios as we're going through them and write some names down. I think that's the, the most important piece to start with. Write down your center of its influence, write down the, the clients that you think fall in here and start now. 
because I have a feeling as you get towards the end of the year, a lot of the really high powered state planning groups, they're going to backed up, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we saw that last year. I was trying to, to get a good team attorney on the line. I think it was in October and they were just book solid because clients were rushing to gifts back then. And a lot of clients didn't take advantage of it because the election wasn't certain yet and blah, blah, blah. We're going to run into the same thing this year, I believe. And it's already started to happen. So uh, the sooner you, you start talking to your clients and get them talking to a good trust and estates attorney, the better. Now, having said that, I like to have a couple, when I'm involved in a case with a client, I want to have two or three conversations, build the relationship, present some of these really solid ideas. And so getting them starting to get some buy-in from the client. So you have good, better control. Don't rush out and cede your control to the, to the attorney right away, but the client should at least try and try to get in the queue with the attorney. We have a number of tools that we can give to you that'll help you backfill some of the stuff that Bob and I talked about, give you some things to think about. First, you know, if you want to email me at it's s whitehead at totalfinancial.com, s whitehead at totalfinancial.com. Number one, we have Bob's estate planning principles, those seven principles I can send you that. We've got a summary of the proposed changes that Highland did that we can send you that. Our website, www.totalfinancial.com, has an advanced planning section that we just redid. It's got tons of tools, client pieces, fact finders, calculators. Lots of tools for you to go out and look at, use. So that's on www.totalfinancial.com. And most importantly, really, it's the, it's the case discussion. And, uh, and Bob said it a number of times. He will talk to the client. Call me if you have a client that you want to discuss. Because each case, as, as we've talked about, is, is unique. Our phone number is 1-800-989-7500. 1-800-989-7500. Give me a buzz. And let's talk about your unique case figure out where we want to go with it. Then we can get Bob on the line and, you know, then we can just open up the possibilities. And I will tell you in the last, I don't know, four weeks, Bob and I have probably had at least four or five discussions on cases, right, Bob? Yeah, easily. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's, it's happening. It's, it, this is real. So huge. Thank you, Bob. I really want to say thanks for sharing your time, your expertise, your thoughts. So I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. Yeah, my, my pleasure. Thank you, Scott. So with that, please visit us on the web, www.totalfinancial.com, or you can call us at 1-800-989-7500. We appreciate you listening to the uh, Total Financial Podcast. We will talk to you next time. Thanks.